I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And And this this is Sinai Sinai Temple Torah Torah Talk, a channel for your daily dose of drash, abyssal Torah, from our home to yours. Catch up with the latest rabbi sermons, Torah classes, rabbinic insights, and more. Follow us now so you don't miss a word. Infusing Torah in our daily lives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Thursday Morning Torah. I am uh, delighted to be able to join you shortly before Pesach to talk (laughs) about, I was just informed that a recording is in progress, Um, to talk about Pesach from another perspective. I'm going to be giving um, a couple of different uh, ways of looking at Pesach. I did in the uh, learning and lunch, those of you that were there. Today, I want to talk about uh, one theological and one psychological aspect of the Passover story as given in the Torah. Um, One of the ways that we read stories tends to be uh, selectively. That is, the part of the story that is meaningful to us is the part of the story that we focus on. And... The rest of the story doesn't seem to mean so much to us. And a a perfect example of this is when you watch one of those like gladiator movies or something like that, and a thousand people die and you don't care, but you care about the fate of the central figure, whoever that figure is. And that's just the way that human beings work is um, there are always extras in the movie. And that's true of most stories, most of the time, we're not able to focus on that. In the Passover story, the same thing happens. And well, I won't say we're not aware of it. I don't think we think about it as much as perhaps we should. Um, Because the Passover story is a story of the Jews being slaves in Egypt for a long time before they get liberated. And that means for hundreds of years, the Jews endured slavery and were not liberated. And that reality does not play as large a role in our consciousness of the Passover story as one might think, because it doesn't reflect well on the theology of the question. Why does God allow 200 years of slavery, different calculations, doesn't matter at the moment exactly how many years, But why does God allow 200 years of slavery and then the people can go free? And this is obviously one species of the eternal question of why God allows bad things to happen. Um, But it also demonstrates something about the Torah that I think is worth a moment's reflection on, which is that the Torah, generally speaking, and there are exceptions to this, works on collective and not individual uh, reward and punishment. That is, the Torah is about the education of a people, not the education of a person. And therefore, Israel will suffer and Israel will benefit, and 
it doesn't always matter how the individual um, feels about it. So for example, uh, in the book of Joshua, Achan uh, takes stuff that he's not supposed to take from the conquest and then they draw lots and lots of people are punished for Achan's sin, which is manifestly unfair for an individualistic ethic, but for a collective ethic, it's how it works. And that's the idea of, you know, um, if one person in the class misbehaves, the whole class has to stay after. And while to our highly individualistic society and ears, that's manifestly unjust and should not happen and should be ruled out of court and uh, not something, for example, we would ever teach our children. Um, it is, in fact, both a common feature of certain societies and, in some ways, a highly effective one. Because the way that you get the kind of peer pressure that creates all sorts of conformity, including moral conformity, is by saying the entire class either benefits or suffers from the doings of anyone in the class. And so all of Israel collectively suffers slavery and all of Israel collectively is liberated. Now, we're not told exactly why the generation that suffers slavery post-Joseph um, deserved to suffer slavery, but it's not necessarily a question of their deserving. It may be a question of that is the necessary condition to set up in order for God to liberate the people from Egypt. And therefore, their suffering is morally inconsequential to the point that the story wants to make. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you should like this or be okay with it or think, well, that's just the way it is and it's fine. But we should be aware of that because even when the people are saved, it is a collective salvation. And if you said to me, but what if there were some people in Israel who were saved and they were really no good mix, right? Because every people has its no good mix. Um, every people has its, you know, its thieves, its um, cowards, its evildoers. Uh, why do they get to be freed along with the rest of Israel? Um, and in fact, there is this uh, rabbinic idea that an Arab Rav, which was a mixed multitude, but that's usually not Jews that they're talking about, um, are, are freed along with Israel. But if you ask why does that deserve to be, the answer generally is that this is a freeing of the people of Israel, and they're part of the people of Israel, so they get to be free. Um, well, you don't get benefits as a people if you don't get punished as a people. And this is an interesting way to think about the way the world actually works. Um, being born in America is not something that I earned, right? I could have been born in the Sudan, and then I would have suffered for it. The inequality of groups is part of the reality of life. Now, that doesn't mean you have to accept it or you shouldn't work against it, but at least in the Torah, 
the group carries more of the moral authority than the individual does. And the question is, is Israel following God's way? Not is every individual in Israel following God's way? Or is Israel violating God's way? Not is every individual in Israel violating God's way? Um, and so this is a knotty moral question that Pesach raises that we don't usually discuss at the Passover table, but it's an interesting question, which is how do you account for God allowing Jews to be in slavery before they are free? And is there any kind of moral justification for that? Um, or is that just wrong? And, and why is it that God, um, a God of Israel, a good God, would do such a thing? So uh, that's, that's the first thing that I wanted to talk about um, because I thought that it was important for us to recognize the, uh, the reality that the Passover story in some ways is the second half of the Passover story that we really pay attention to. But the first half of the Passover story, to a great extent, we don't pay attention to. The first half of the Passover story, which is the story of the initial descent into slavery, that we tend to elide, we tend to skip. Um, okay, so next, uh, next piece of this. And in some ways, this is sort of the opposite of the, uh, of the um, public group question, which is the individual psychological question. One is a sociological question, a theological and moral question, and the other is the psychodynamics of it. And that is throughout history, and this is not new, although it's still new in the tenor of the question. Throughout history, people have wondered, in what way am I unfree? What does Passover have to say to me as an individual about freedom and about slavery? And, and here, the, the Haggadah does refocus us on individuals, on the forced sons, for example, now the four children, um, on uh, different rabbis and how they were studying the Passover story and Midrash. And so from the grand theological, you come to the personal psychodynamic. And the reason that this is um, the opposite end of the pole, in a way, is that Judaism by and large, deals with the public, the group, the external, by and large. Um, that is, the mitzvot are generally done in public. Prayer is public, right? The central prayers of Judaism, you can't say if you're alone. Judaism is not a solo practice. Whitehead said that religion is what a man does with his solitude, which is, for a Protestant thinker like Whitehead, perhaps the case, but no Jew, no Jewish philosopher would say Judaism is what a man does with his solitude because it's not true. Judaism is what we do with the collective and all of the central Jewish celebrations are built on some kind of collective, whether it be a family, a community, a minion, a shul or whatever. 
there is, as you would expect, a countervailing tend tendency in Judaism as well um, for internal, personal, individual uh, understandings of the mitzvot and of Judaism. And this, in fact, is the modern tendency because we moderns live in what, you know, Philip Reef long ago um, dubbed the therapeutic age. And so our psychology and our psychodynamics and the way that we look at ourselves and think about ourselves, those things have much more impact to us uh, in some ways than the public and the communal. Uh, and so that's why um, the, uh, that's why the um, mysticism has made such a comeback because mysticism can be in part an individual uh, practice. Um, the, uh, the question of Pesach is therefore a question of individual psychodynamic slavery as well as public um, general slavery. By the way, I, I want to just address what Jim says. He says it's interesting that Moses argues for individuals in seeking to dissuade God from, from punishing everyone, Abraham also. Well, yes and no, because they're both speaking about groups. Abraham doesn't say save Lot. He says, what if there's a group of righteous people, 10, right? He doesn't say one. And Moses the same. Now, it is true that they pray for individuals. Moses prays for Miriam to be cured. Um, that's the case. And I don't want to say that the individual is completely erased because Abraham and Moses themselves are individuals whom God singles out. It's impossible to erase the individual. And Judaism starts with every individual is created in the image of God. So I don't want to overstate the case, but the weight of moral, um, of moral uh, either approval or disapproval is so much greater um, is to, the weight of the group is so much greater then than it would be now. That's what I mean. In fact, you can see, I, I, I'm, I'll go a step further. You can see this group thinking when people don't like other people based on their nationalities, right? This is a sort of species of it. Um, we hate Americans or these days we discriminate against all Russians, right? It's that kind of Everybody in the group bears responsibility for the group, and we don't accept this morality anymore. I think we should. Um, but in the Torah, that's very much how God operates with the Israelites. Um, almost, it's very rare for God to say, all of Israel's fine, but this guy, this guy has to get it in the neck. So um, in any case, uh, to continue with the psychodynamics, the varieties of ways that human beings enslave themselves are endless. And the degree of slavery and whether that word entirely applies is also pretty endless. So um, we have lots of different compulsions in our lives and things we think we need to do or have to do or should do. Is that a kind of slavery? Well, in a sense it is. Um, is it slavery like being a slave in Egypt? No, it's not the same, but it's also not a freedom. And the ability of, of a, as a human being to be freed of internal um, 
coercion, let's put it that way, is a lifelong quest. And I don't think that any of us fully attain, attain it. Um, the kind of radical freedom that someone like Sartre used to propose, I don't think is actually humanly possible. We always have too many voices, too much history, um, too much that is already preset inside of us to be able to be fully free. But Pesach each year comes along to remind us that this is part of the human struggle, is to try to free yourself not so that there aren't things you have to do, but to free yourself to choose the things that you have to do. Um, that's why, at least according to the Jewish tradition, as I mentioned during the Lunch and Learn, um, to, to, to be compelled to do God's will is freedom. Because freedom is in part to be able to reach your full potential. It's not only um, to be able to do whatever it is that you want to do, right? This part of freedom is the ability to do things that you couldn't do. A piano player or who can play well is freer in a sense than I am because they can play the piano well. And that gives them a freedom of expression, of music, of so on that I don't have. So freedom is not only an absence of constraint, it's also a presence of potential, uh, which is why in theory, a human being is freer than an armadillo because an armadillo follows its instincts. It's a whole life, at least all the armadillos that I've known have followed their instincts. Can't speak for all armadillos. But a human being is capable of transcending his or her instinct and doing that which is radically free. My whole life I was trained to do X. Now I do Y. Um, and, and those choices can be all sorts of different kinds of choices um, as long as they are freely made to the extent that we are able to free ourselves from these compulsions. And the Passover Seder reminds us that we have that ability to be free um, because among other things, Passover requires a radical overhaul of your life and you have to choose it, right? You don't have to do it. It's not obligatory, not in our world. Nobody's gonna force you to eat matzah, but you can choose to do it. And if it is a free choice, then it is an expression of freedom. Um, so, Passover works also in addition to the usual levels, I think on these two very powerful and important levels that we don't usually credit. One is the idea that the group carries some morality. And by the way, we have vestigial, um, sometimes more than vestigial feelings about this. When a Jew does something embarrassing, if a Jew feels embarrassed, why is that? Because you have a group identity. Not because obviously what Bernie Madoff did has any reflection on me or my family, but the fact that he was Jewish and did this somehow impacts me, even though I had nothing to do with Bernie Madoff. And, and the same thing with like, why, why should I take pride in Albert Einstein, right? My family isn't Einstein's family. He's not, you know, my brother and I didn't have anything to do with teaching him physics. Uh, but the fact that I have a group identity with Jews gives me somehow, I somehow feel more proud of him than I do of Niels Bohr, who was a physicist, but wasn't Jewish. Um, and, uh, and then the second piece of this is this psychodynamic self-liberation that, that Pesach is supposed to help us um, jumpstart. And it's interesting there 
just from this point of view that it is a family holiday because the family is after all the origin of your slavery and your liberation both. It's where you learn what you're obligated to do, what you can escape doing, where you find whatever space you find at the beginning to be yourself or to please others or all of that, right? Families are invariably complicated things, all of them. And the fact that Passover is generally a family celebration reminds us how um, the reality and the struggle for freedom is, uh, has its origins um, in every family, uh, whatever your family is, um, depending on what it's like when you grow up. So let's now check and see if there are any questions. Uh, live chat, let's see. I am now scrolling the live chat. Thank you, Deborah, for that kind comment. Um, no, I don't see any more. So let me make a couple more, um, a couple more comments and then, uh, then we can wrap it up for this morning. So the, the fact that we feel group solidarity is, even though I know that to be punished as a group feels unfair, you don't get group pride without a sense of group punishment. And you don't get attachment of one group to another without that. So when different kinds of groups um, come together and make common cause, they're doing it as a collective, not just as an individual. It's not just one person doing it with another. Um, and, and so right now, for example, when different nations are helping Ukraine, they're helping as nations, that is as a, as a collective group, nation X, Y, or Z is going over there. And that's what nations are in part, obviously. They are this agreement to be part of a collective and understanding that the good and the bad that afflict the collective are going to afflict you because you're a part of it. You don't live alone on an island, right? You live as part of a people and the fate of that people you are implicated in by virtue of the fact that you're choosing to live as a this, as a that, or as something else, whether, um, you know, whether you're Jewish or, um, or Christian or uh, Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or, um, or Armenian or Canadian or Mexican or whatever the origin is, by just saying those words, you're saying, I am part of this larger group that is, um, whose fate is implicated with my own fate. Uh, and, and, and we have multiple identities that way. It's not just national groups, there are religious groups, there are groups of interest and affinity. Um, there's sports fans of this or that uh, team. Why is it that if, you know, a player who didn't play for that team last year, all of a sudden plays for the team this year and strikes out and you who never had, you don't know the player, never met him. And yet your day is ruined because that guy struck out because those collective bonded identities are really powerful in people. And we do feel each other through them to a great extent. Um, and that means that there's a certain 
moral calculus that works with that group that is not, you know, um, that is just not, I mean, why is it, again, like, why is it, why is a Jew today particularly affected by the Shoah, um, especially if they grew up in a different part of the world, didn't have, because it's the group identity, right? You can't hear that and not feel it. And so, uh, even though the Torah works in a way that we don't normally think of, I think we work that way more than, than we sometimes give it credit for. And then uh, inside ourselves, inside ourselves, we are all both free and slave. There are things we wish to do or could do or hope to do, and then other things that make very difficult uh, to find that we're, uh, that even if we want to, we can't, have you, you know the phrase, I can't bring myself to do something. Well, what does that mean? That means that the part of me that holds me back is stronger than the part of me that wants to move forward. In other words, I don't have total freedom. I place restraints upon myself, some of them conscious, many of them I'm sure unconscious. And Pesach helps us to remember the ways in which not only we were slaves historically, but we continue to be slaves. And also, of course, to have a social conscience about those who are, in fact, slaves in this world. And I have no doubt that at many Sadarim all over the world, uh, Ukraine is going to be mentioned this year. And we should remember many, many, many others. There are still many refugees um, from different places around the world who are homeless and scared. Um, and and if you are lucky enough to have a place to celebrate the Seder and you have food on your table, um, then I hope you are as grateful as I feel to have all of those things and to have you um, to Thursday morning Torah. So thank you. That's a little bit about Pesach. Uh, I think we have a class next week in which I will, I hope, wrap up Pesach and some other themes altogether. And uh, until then, I hope you have a Shabbat Shalom. I hope you have a good week. And uh, when we get to it, a Chag Kasher V'Sameach. Take care.